Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, you are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. It is a warm and beautiful Friday afternoon in the nation's capital. Hello and welcome to the Brian Lilly Podcast. I don't know where you are. I don't know what it's like where you are, what time of day you're listening to this at. But as I record this on a a mid-Friday afternoon, late Friday afternoon, the nation's capital is opening up in all its beauty. Hello and welcome to May. Spring, real spring, is finally here. The tulips will be opening up soon. Uh, It was recording a video up on the lawn of Parliament Hill. You had all these young people out suntanning on the lawn, playing games on the lawn of the Parliament buildings, and the patios are starting to come to life as well on Spark Street, which has been, you know, is, is, is a wind tunnel in the winter and can be awful to walk down because everyone's just scurrying along to get in somewhere, get, in, get, get inside somewhere. But now it is coming to life. The patio's out, people just eating their lunch on on the little half walls in front of some of the buildings and soaking up the sunshine. Oh, I, I, if you haven't been to Ottawa in the summer or the spring, you owe it to yourself to come here sometime. I've been across the country. There are beautiful places all across Canada, but the nation's capital has some spectacular beauty. Yep, we've got in our business district just down from Parliament Hill, we have some of the ugliest buildings in the country, these square, soulless bunker buildings, and I'm sitting in one right now. I'm I'm in the basement. I am in the bunker, recording the podcast. But you've got Parliament Hill. You've got the Supreme Court building, the Langevin Block. You've got the Shadow Laurier. You've got the Rideau Canal. You've got the Byward Market. You've got Elgin Street, and you can you can take in an awful lot of Canada's culture just walking around and enjoying the sights, the sounds, the tastes, the history. Recorded another video at Sapper's Bridge, which is a little place underneath where the National War Memorial is. So two places to go in one. I didn't mean to to open up this edition of the Brian Lilly podcast with a, a travel uh, log for Ottawa. This, you know, I'm not being sponsored by the Ottawa Tourism Association, although if they want to give me a call, just ask Jim Watson, the mayor knows where to find me. Uh, no, this is, um, this is just me reveling in the fact that it's absolutely spectacularly beautiful out. Unfortunately, the news is not always spectacularly beautiful. Coming up later in the podcast, we are going to hear from uh, Matthew Fisher. He is, he's the war correspondent. I, I don't know what Matthew's official title is. He is a foreign correspondent of sorts for Post Media. You find him mostly in the National Post. He travels the world, been in close to 20 war zones, and he's in London right now. He's just come back from Iraq where he was on the front lines talking to Kurdish generals who are benefiting, their troops are benefiting from the training of the Canadian forces. So he's coming up later in the podcast. And Helen Ward, who is an activist on the daycare front, but not for the universal child care model, given her uh, family and life situation or politics, all kinds of things. You you know, she, 
Helen Ward is the demographic that the daycare lobby wants and claims is their own, and yet she rejects the daycare model. And and she talks to me about some of the myths behind the push to say the government should be raising our children. There's a lot of myths in that. But I want to start somewhere else. I want to start on a patio out upon Spark Street, but let, let me deal with some news first, and then then I'll get to the patio. And maybe a burger, maybe just some fries, a nice pint, gin and tonic. It, it's summer weather, so gin and tonic is, you know, pretty good drink this time of year. But if you are in southern Ontario, you, your concern right now isn't what to drink. It's, it's about the job situation. General Motors announcing they don't have a car to replace the Camaro, and the Camaro production will stop at the Oshawa General Motors plant and next year, and a 1,000 people are out of work. And this comes, what, two weeks after Toyota announced that they were pulling production of the Corolla made in Cambridge, Ontario, for 27 years. They're sending that down to Mexico by 2019. They're saying, yet there's probably going to be a replacement. They'll, they'll find something, but people are worried about their jobs now that the Corolla's gone, one of the top-selling cars. Will they find something to replace it to keep all those jobs, or are the jobs, some of the jobs at least, going to just be shipped down to Mexico with production? And then you've got the story out of Napanee, Ontario, Goodyear. Their tire plant in Napanee was a couple of years ago called the most efficient in the entire Goodyear operation. It was up for a possible expansion. Goodyear's doing well. They want to expand. But instead of expanding with uh, in Napanee, their most efficient plant, they are going to expand in Mexico. There's a lot of reasons for this. There's low-cost wages. The Mexican government is being aggressive in terms of you know, subsidies and deals and so on. But there's another factor at play because Ontario can't, Ontario can't control what Mexico is going to offer these companies. And, and when you're talking about these special deals to set up a job shop, a manufacturing facility with lots of jobs in your jurisdiction, you are essentially bribing the company to go there. And we've done it before. Now Mexico is doing it. And some people want Ontario, Canada as a whole to get back into that game. It's a losing, it's a losing game for everyone involved. There are times when the subsidies don't add up to the number of jobs created. So Goodyear, Toyota moving to Mexico, General Motors shifting the Camaro to Lansing, Michigan, and investing $5 billion in that plant. What connects all of these? Because you said GM's not going to Mexico, the other two are. Why is Ontario so long an economic engine of the country, so long a manufacturing hub? When I was a kid, you drive down Burlington Street in Hamilton, and you had Procter & Gamble, you had Stelco, you had DeFasco, you had International Harvester. The list went on. You had National Steel Car. They're still doing well, thanks to the, the boom in rail traffic, because we won't build enough pipelines. But a lot of these companies have packed up and left. Some of them a long time ago, some of them more recently. But why is Ontario no longer a manufacturing hub? According to the Mowat Center, a liberal connected think tank, 
headed by a guy who is currently writing Justin Trudeau's platform. Matthew Mendelssohn took a, a leave of absence to write Justin Trudeau's platform. Between 2004 and 2014, Ontario lost 300,000 manufacturing jobs. It went from 15% of the workforce down to 10%. Why? What is happening? Is it just the subsidies being offered by Mexico? Is it just the low wages? No. There's more to it than that. There is the fact that one of the main costs outside of labor for a manufacturing operation is power, electricity. And guess what's been happening in Ontario? That cost has been going through the roof. And they cannot control for that by negotiating a new contract because there's only one supplier. There's only one group that's going to set the, the price. And that's the Ontario Liberal government, which decided a long time ago that it wanted to go on a green energy kick. And the man that designed that green energy program is a gentleman named Gerald Butts who used to be a principal secretary to Dalton McGuinty when he was the Liberal Premier of Ontario. And Butts was the man behind the green energy plan. He may try and disown it now. He used to take credit for it. Maybe he's going to try and disown it now that it's become such a disaster that it's costing people their jobs, making it difficult for many Ontarians to, to pay the bills. I saw a sign recently, I, I used to be afraid of the dark, now I'm afraid of the lights. That's how bad the prices have gotten in Ontario. And so imagine you're a manufacturer, and after your labor costs, which you've done a good job of trying to control, you've, you're paying a good wage, but you're managing costs, and you know, all of this. You've got a good productive workforce, but you cannot control the cost of your energy. What's going to happen? Eventually, you're going to leave. Ontario decided that rather than relying on Niagara Falls and Chaudière Falls and all these other hydroelectric systems rather than relying on Nanticoke, a state-of-the-art, you know, by coal standards, clean power plant, rather than relying on nuclear. No, we were going to go with solar and wind. And this was dreamed up, designed by Gerald Butts, who is now Justin Trudeau's chief advisor. That's why what ha is happening in Ontario with the disaster that it is matters regardless of where you live in Canada because Gerald Butts is going to help design whatever Justin Trudeau does. So if you like what they're doing to the jobs in Ontario, you're going to love what they do to the jobs across Canada. And this is really eating at me as I keep seeing Gerald Butts on the streets of Ottawa and you know, it's a coffee shop up the street he's always in just looking smug and loving his liberal pieties as his policies, his vision, his dreams destroy jobs for real people. And then his leader stands up and says he is standing up for the middle class. No, he's standing up for liberal pieties. He's standing up for liberal dogma. These guys were wrecking balls in Ontario to the economy. My fear is they're going to be wrecking balls for the economy of the whole country if they win. Now, on the upside, fundraising numbers show that Justin Trudeau is not the juggernaut that many in the media had hoped for. The conservatives outraised both the NDP and the liberals combined in the first quarter of 2015. Those numbers just released uh, this week. The Conservatives raising $6.3 million from 41,000 donors. The Liberals 3.8 from 34,000 donors. 
and the NDP 28,000 donors and $2.2 million. The Liberals only went up $90,000 over the first quarter of last year, and this is an election year. So maybe the word is getting out. But in case it's not, warn your family, warn your friends. If you like the job losses across Ontario and you want them to spread to the rest of the country, if you like the disaster that Ontario's become and you want it to spread across the rest of the country, vote for Justin Trudeau. But if you don't want that, make sure that is the last thing you do. Stick around. Matthew Fisher coming up with an update on what our Canadian forces are really doing in Iraq and why we should all be proud of what they're doing to help the Kurds beat back ISIS and Helen Ward on busting the myths on daycare. I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. More in moments. We don't listen to him because he's sexy, but it doesn't hurt. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. You are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. It was supposed to be a six-month training mission. It was supposed to be a, a mission that was not about going into Syria. Of course, it's expanded several times. It's changed direction. That has some Canadians worried, but Matthew Fisher, who has covered Actually, I'll ask him in a minute how many wars. I believe it's close to 20, if not more, uh, and has been around the world for post-media. Joins me now to uh, to talk about what's happening in Iraq, where he visited recently. Matthew, thanks for joining me. Uh, nice to talk to you, Brian. You, uh, how many wars is it that you've covered? Well, what is a war and what is a conflict? This is sort of like when you ask somebody, do they speak a language or not? And they say they do, but you listen to them and then you kind of disagree. It's subjective, you know. But uh, I've been, by my count, to 19 wars and conflicts. That is places where all hell is broken loose. Uh, And not just for a day or two, not a riot, but something fairly substantive that endures at least a few months. Yeah, so you're not talking about going to Montreal after a hockey game. You're talking about real conflicts. Uh, yes, I. Well, certainly nothing like anything that's taken place in Canada, probably since uh, some of the Indian Wars or the War of eighteen twelve in the nineteenth century. The the Canadian public generally supports the the mission to Iraq, much to the chagrin of of some politicians and some pundits. There's some unease about the expansion into Syria, but generally they're supportive of the idea of going after ISIS or ISIL, whichever name you want to uh, to use with them. You recently visited the Kurdish Peshmerga forces that are, are fighting alongside Canadians, and they were raving about what our special uh, forces have been doing. They were unbelievably complimentary. Now, you always have to take what people say overseas about anything to do with your own country with a grain of salt. People tend to want to be polite and gracious to you about your contribution. But I would say that the Peshmerga, the Kurds that I spoke to, went way beyond this. Uh, they, uh, I spoke with five different generals separately and in different geographic locations. They all said the same thing, that uh, they admire and respect the Canadians and that, most importantly from their point of view, the Canadians have been been willing to do more 
to help them than any of the other countries. That is not to say that the Canadians have been involved in combat or are seeking combat, but what the Canadians have done, which is different, is they have been willing to go to the very front of the front lines to advise and also uh, to uh, select targets and then laser them for the coalition aircraft. As I understand it, and this is a secret of worlds, you never really know for sure, but as I understand it, no other country has been quite so forthcoming, including the United States, that the Canadians have taken on a special role there, and they certainly are in one of the two most hotly disputed areas. That is, the Canadians are advising just to the east of Mosul, about 13 kilometers from Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, and um, uh, a key place where ISIL's quite firmly entrenched, where ISIL looted all the banks, where ISIL apparently has got a lot of its weapons because there were very large uh, ammunition depots there. Uh, the other hot spot, if you like, is around Ramadi and Fallujah, and it is U.S. Marine advisors who are down there assisting Iraqi security forces. Where the Canadians are on this front line, uh, they're with the Peshmerga. The Peshmerga are also being advised by other countries, such as the British, the Dutch, the Americans, the French, but not in quite such a front-line way. And uh, that is the distinction, and that is why the Peshmerga in particular uh, are raving about the Canadians. So they're willing to, to go to the front lines. Let me ask you if that front line is moved, because that's part of the the worry, I guess, about getting into a conflict like this. Will we have an impact? Will there be uh, any attempt to say, uh, yes, let's let's push ISIL back? Well, are, we, are very, we pushing them back? Very much so. I mean, the only reason any of the foreign advisors are there are to the, assist the Iraqi security forces and the Kurdish Peshmerga to advance and throw uh, ISIS out of the country. Uh, so that's exactly why they're there. Now in terms of offensive operations, uh, the Kurds around Kirkuk to the south and to the uh, west of Kirkuk claimed quite a bit of land back in fighting in March uh, and uh, a bit more recently than that as well. Uh, they've claimed back 10, 15, 17 kilometers of land as I understand it. Up near where the Canadians are, what is happening is there's great preparations are being made for an offensive. It's going to be, as I understand it, uh, and no Canadians have told me this, I'm not getting secret information or anything, but it looks very much like it will be a two-pronged attack with Iraqi security forces attacking from one side against uh, the forces in Mosul and the Canadians advising the Peshmerga who will come down from the hill uh, in, to the west that overlooks the town of Mosul. So the, there will definitely be an offensive. Some people have predicted it will take place in May. Some people have said it will be October. From what I could see, it's not going to happen that soon. And the reason is not because of the Peshmerga. The Peshmerga are fairly ready to go. Uh, the problem is the Iraqi security forces are not ready to go on the other side. They continue to be in considerable disarray. Uh, they are, of course, the people who abandoned Mosul. The Iraqi security forces left and left all this weaponry behind. They, they, yeah, fled. they just ran away. Yeah, they didn't engage 
ISIL or ISIS. They they just left. So uh, they're waiting for them to get their act together. Uh, and then the Peshmerga would move down off the hill. And one would presume, since the Canadian advisors are with them and the Canadian mission has been exp- extended, that the Canadian advisors will move forward with the front uh, to help identify targets. That seems to be the specific job the Canadians are doing on the front lines. The Canadians are doing many other things to help the Peshmerga, but the other things they're doing to help the Peshmerga are a little bit behind the front lines, and that is in offering courses. And I was told by the Peshmerga the Canadians are giving them courses in first aid, medical, military first aid. They're giving them courses in map reading. They're giving them courses in how to be snipers. Uh, they're giving them courses in how to operate and maintain weaponry. And they're also giving them uh, courses in how to organize uh, squad, platoon, and company-level attacks. Uh, uh, Which all sounds very basic for a military here, but I, I know from uh, speaking of friends and family that served in Afghanistan, they said the reason that we didn't have higher casualty rates in Afghanistan is that the guys they were fighting against had no training, had no idea on what to do with their, their rifle other than what they called uh, spray and pray. Spray and pray, but also they knew the land. I mean, they did have certain advantages. They mm-hmm. they tended to know the land better than the Canadian did, the ground, which is important in a war. And also they had uh, literally infinite supply of warriors. And so, you know, if Canada suffered severe casualties, uh, the political will to uh, participate in the war would um, be in peril. Yeah. And that does not happen with these other guys. You kill 20 of them and 20 more pop up 30 seconds later because it's also part of the religion and these people are quite fanatical about their religion. They They like the jihadi component where if you die, you're a martyr and you go to heaven so it's you're blessed if you die in combat we of course take a rather different view of that we view the people who die in combat on our side as being brave and courageous and we honor them uh, but we do not regard them as blessed and they certainly don't die thinking they will be blessed and, right. and so that, that's an important distinction but uh, the the thing always when you fight these kind of wars is the other side, the Islamists, have an infinite supply of people and uh, the effect of killing them in terms of uh, uh, hurting their political support on their side, it doesn't really exist as a factor. In fact, sometimes it emboldens them when they suffer big defeats. Uh, they become even more passionate or fervent about the battle. So it gets complicated because we're coming at it with two very different logics. Wanna, I know you're in London to, to cover the British election and the, the arrival of the royal baby. But I want to ask you about the, the British election, just quick thoughts in a moment. But first, Ukraine's uh, foreign minister, uh, Pavlo, uh, Pavlo Klimkin, is in Ottawa today, and he was thanking the Canadian government for their support in terms of um, you know, more money for uh, building up democracy, including fighting corruption in his country, and... Canadian troops going to help train the Ukrainians. Putin says this is an aggressive move and a provocation. Are we at risk of of getting ourselves tangled up in something with the Russians with this move? I don't think so. But if who is provoking whom here? Uh, Vladimir Putin 
has since I physically uh, saw them, eyeballed them myself in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Since last uh, March and April, uh, Russia has had forces in Ukraine and at the pointy end fighting. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Canada, as far as it is possible to get away from where the front is, our, our, our soldiers who will be there as advisors are to be in the north uh, western corner of the country along the Polish border. Uh, they are the equivalent in terms of distance would be uh, to have uh, uh, we're doing training in Windsor while uh, there's a battle taking place in Quebec City. And so to regard this as some kind of provocation is, is a bit much. It's a bit rich. And also because of that geographic distance, the chance of the Canadians being involved in combat with the Russians is very low. Where we might get in con uh, combat with the Russians is if Russia continues to do what it has been doing and takes the fight into the uh, Baltic states where we have treaty obligations through NATO to protect those nations. Then as part of NATO, it is conceivable to me, I think unlikely, but conceivable that Canada could go to war against Russia in that scenario, but absolutely not in this training scenario that is being proposed and the lead component of our trainers going there uh, they're not uh, going to even train the Ukrainians on offensive operations the, the first group of trainers that are going there are specifically going to be uh, demining people to teach the Ukrainians how to demine well of course that is a way to destroy weapons not to make war so uh, I think there are important distinctions to be made here and even our advisors are going in a defensive advising role rather than in an offensive advising role in Ukraine. All right. I, uh, as I said, you are in the uh, the UK to cover the election. Ladbroke says um, the the odds for any party winning favor the Conservatives right now, but it remains a bit of a toss up, doesn't it? It's extremely close. The BBC poll this morning had uh, the Conservatives at 34 and Labour at 33. And uh, in the last two weeks, uh, I guess the Conservatives have won a few more of the polls by a point or two compared to Labour. But the Conservative vote is more concentrated, so it doesn't translate into as many seats as you might think. The Labour, uh, although it looks like they would still get more seats than Labour would, Labour's problem, if they wish to uh, get back in power, is the biggest block of seats available to them and the ones that will likely make the difference in a minority or coalition situation is the Scottish Nationalist Party. And that party may sweep all 59, I think it's 59, of the seats in Scotland. If that happens, that's a hell of a rump party. They are like the Bloc Québécois. They want to break the country up. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the choice that the Liberals and I guess the Conservatives too have faced for in minority situations in Canada a few years ago. Uh, do you try to form a coalition government with people who want to break up your country? And it's very, very perilous politically because a lot of your own supporters will want you to have nothing to do with separatists. That's what certainly happened in Canada. And I guess the same thing will happen here. So Labour could form the next government, but only by, if you like, sleeping with Scottish <laughs> separatists. And that would uh, mean a huge political price. Honestly, what I think we're facing will be a hung parliament, 
Uh, I mean, they'll try to form a cabinet. They they may convene parliament. But I am guessing the British people will have to do the whole darn thing over again in six months or so, which for Canadians who are old enough, and I'm barely old enough and don't really remember it at all, but that's what happened in Canada in 57 and 58, where we had two federal elections very close to each other, and we had it also in 62 and 63, because there were no clear consensus emerged out of one election, so we had to have a second one. Well, we, we were told that we would have that in 2006 when Stephen Harper won, and of course he just managed to navigate the waters and play opposition parties against each other. So if David Cameron is, is out in front in a, in a Hun parliament, he might be calling Stephen Harper and his advisors for some advice. Matthew Fisher in London. Thanks so much, Matthew. Great talking to you. Love reading you as always. And anyone that wants to know what's happening in the world's hotspots, Matthew Fisher is a must read. Stick around. More to come. In the meantime, check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. You're listening to the Brian Lilly Podcast. Check Brian out at facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. He's hated in official Ottawa. Love by you. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. The daycare fight continues and parents on both sides feel like they are sometimes not heard. But when it comes to the media, when it comes to the the funding for organizations, there's one side that's always heard, and that's the daycare lobby. And they've been putting forward the idea that there is a daycare shortage, especially in Canada's major urban centers. Hello and welcome back to the Brian Lilly podcast. I'm Brian Lilly, and my next guest has actually studied the issue. Helen Ward is with uh, Parents First. No, Kids First Parent Association of Canada. There we go. Kids First Parents Association. It's my fault for not having my notes in front of me. Instead, I have your study in front of me mm-hmm. that you did with the Institute for Marriage and Family Canada. And mm-hmm. you actually decided, okay, let's take them up on this idea that there's a daycare shortage across Canada. They mm-hmm. run ads. We've seen the ads. We've heard the stats. There's there's only enough daycare spots for one in five children across Canada has access to a licensed daycare center, and they so we need more. What did you actually find out when you looked at the data? Well, I've been looking at this data for actually almost 15 years. There's data that shows that there's a lot of vacancies in daycare centers. Um, there's the data we have in in the uh, study is from the uh, Toronto open data source it wasn't it used to be easy to find now it's not so easy to find but we did find it and basically you've got vacancy rates of uh, between about three and a half to six and a half percent over the last number of years Um, so that's up to about 3600 spots that are vacant Um, but uh, this is this data has been around for a while. Uh, back in 2000, there was a big study called the You Bet I Care study that had information about vacancies that wasn't publicized either that said that over 50% of the daycare centers had vacancies and that's um, a large, 30% of those were, I think, over 10% vacant. So 
this is a, a long-term problem that the daycare people are aware of, but they don't want us to know about it. I've had a hard time getting it publicized. I'm really glad the IMFC was willing to circulate it. So let me read from, from what you found, because, um, you know, the, if you if you had these types of vacancy rates for, let's say, rental apartments, the, we'd be saying that there's a surplus. And that's yes. that's the metric you compare it to. But in the study, you write between January 2009 and October 2014, the total number of vacancies among all age groups in Toronto daycare fluctuated from a low of 3.58% to a high of 6.64%. Mm-hmm. By way of comparison, rental apartment vacancy rate in Toronto as of October 2014 was 1.6%. That's a healthy vacancy rate for apartments. Why is it not a healthy vacancy rate for daycare centers? Well, they they want to create the impression that there's a supply shortage, but what I would say is that there's a demand shortage. I mean, not only are there high vacancy rates, there's uh, what I would consider low enrollment rates. Like when I ask people... How many children under six do you think are in daycare centers, enrolled in daycare centers? Typically, I get an answer, 50%, and people get higher from there. But the actual numbers are um, currently in Canada-wide about 18% for that age group, Uh, actually a little less than that. And this is, again, data that Stats Canada has and collects but does not publicize. What you will hear, they say things like 54% of children are in um, child care. But that, that, that child care means any non-parental care See, uh, for any amount of time. And, so, and I got into an argument with the Parliamentary Budget Office when they released their report on the universal child care benefit a little while ago. Uh-huh. And they said, oh, the money's all going to families that don't have child care expenses. And I said, you are, <laughs> you are measuring against one metric. And that metric is that... Um, Parents who put their kids in institutionalized daycare. And there's nothing, and I hate to use the term, it makes it sound like I'm trying to say this is a negative thing. No, Mm -hmm. that's what works for some families and not Mm -hmm. others, but Mm -hmm. we have to define it somehow. So they measure against families that choose institutionalized daycare, and and they assume that the rest of us have no expenses. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, in that particular thing, it was any paid childcare. So it could be a daycare center, a family daycare or a nanny or something like that. Um, like the issue, is the, like a real absolutely core issue here is how do we define child care? Like we define it as the care of a child, an ex- mm-hmm. inclusive, non-discriminatory definition. Whereas in that report by the Parliamentary Budget Office, they chose to uh, use the most, one of the most discriminatory definitions, and that's the uh, uh, paid child care that has a receipt. Um, that's the definition in the child care expense deduction. But the UCCB, the Universal Child Care Benefit, in there, the implicit definition of child care is the care of a child, and that's what it should be. Um, so these, you know, discrimination by definition is, is what we're looking at here. And like the daycare people, when they say child care, they basically mean daycare centers. Mm-hmm. And that's that's well, and so they're always careful with the term. One in five mm-hmm. has access to a licensed child care center. Mm-hmm. You may pay your neighbor to look after your child and be fully comfortable with that decision. It doesn't mean that they're a licensed daycare, nor does it mean they need to be. Well, actually, even in those that advertising, it's not accurate. The twenty percent figure means any kind of regulated care, which means a licensed daycare center, a licensed daycare home, or a licensed preschool, like most kids who are in preschool for you know a couple hours a, a mm-hmm. 
a week or you know two three times a, day, a week or something, that's also in that 20% statistic. So the actual number of daycare spaces in licensed daycare centers is, is less. I mean, because it's it's not as popular as they want you to think it is. The fact is that there's a lot of money, government money, oh, that goes billion, into billion. daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have you think that it's it's nothing. Mm-hmm. You found that. You know, because, you know, speaking with Andrew Morozik about this the other day, everyone will say, you talk to, you know, the, the most hardcore conservative in Ottawa about the issue of funding for daycare, and they'll say, well, yeah, absolutely. Let's, if there's a, a single mother out there that wants a job and, and she needs subsidy to, to get daycare so she can go out, absolutely we should fund that. Mm-hmm. But that's not who the money goes to. This is, this is what people who advocate for daycare sell it on that's what those who oppose a national daycare system will agree and say yeah let's fund that but you found that as you're right since wealthier families are more likely to have their children in daycare not only does the system pick winners and losers government subsidies do not necessarily help those who need it most yeah daycare centers non-parental child care is used far more by higher income families especially you know basically the higher the income the more use of non-parental child care and daycare centers being the uh, prime option there. And, like, I am one of those low-income single mothers. And when, like, in Toronto, um, a baby in Toronto, if you're low-income, you can get... <laughs> well, they'll they'll pay the entire um, fee, So and they, they'll pay, like, different centers have different fee levels. They'll pay, like, even 1400 1600 They told me, you know, they'll pay the full fee, and that can be, like, $80 a day is typical for an infant. That's $1,600 a month. That's probably more than that mother's going to be earning at her job, mm-hmm. um, if, depending on what kind of job she has. But if you want to, and, that, and that's just a fee subsidy. On top of the fee subsidy, there's this system subsidy that everybody using daycare uh, who doesn't get a fee subsidy benefits from. Um, like people who are, you know, they complain, rightly enough, I guess, about high fees, <laughs> but the fees are not covering even half of the actual cost. So even a high-income family using a daycare center is heavily subsidized by everybody else, and particularly by those of us who don't use those forms of care at all. Do you think that? Um, do you think that the advocates for a national daycare system, which the, this always seems to come back to a fight on yes. that, we know that Martha Friendly, who you reference in the report, is an advocate of mm-hmm. that. Uh, the New Democrats have come out and said they'll replicate the Quebec system across Canada. Oh, heaven help us if that happens. Um, do you think that they don't want everyone to know the true cost, that they don't want everyone to know about these subsidies? Because that would make it, some people realize, hold on, this is insanity. Um, I, I know they don't want you to know because they never publicize the actual full cost. I'm, I'm looking right here at a Stats Canada report published last year in October it's because they're always saying how high the costs are of uh, well they mean daycare centers but this says the median cost of full-time child care differed by province ranging from a low of 152 per month in Quebec to a high of 677 in Ontario now 677 whatever you think of that it's what they what when you read the newspaper articles they're, they're saying that people are spending you know two thousand dollars a month on daycare centers well that's still at $2,000 a month if you're paying that. That's not even you know, the full cost of a daycare center space. But what I mean, the, the, the lobbyists don't talk about the full cost. The full costs include 
rent the operations of the center, all the, the supplies and toys and cleaning that that requires and the staffing and all that administration. And it also um, includes the uh, the capital cost of building a building and buying the land. Or if the land is, be, is owned by the public, then that's an opportunity cost, but it's still a cost. And then there's a massive a bureaucratic infrastructure that uh, in, inspects and monitors and licenses and regulates and handles the subsidies and all that. So you're looking at um, far more money than they want you to, to tell you about. And that's well, I, I, I heard Christian Freeland. I heard Christian Freeland, um, who's one of uh, Justin Trudeau's economic council advisors, saying that we should replicate what Quebec does so that the government can get more tax money by mothers going back into the workforce. Um, there's a couple things with that. One, uh, Quebec's labor participation rate for um, is lower than a lot of other parts of the country, so it may not necessarily hold true. And, and, and two, it sounds like we'd still be spending more than the government's going to pick up from from uh, taxes. Yeah, a study by uh, um, Kevin Milligan, uh, Michael Baker, and another another economist, um, there was a, a peer-reviewed study, you need to look at peer-reviewed studies on these issues, um, found that in the Quebec system, the increased tax revenue covered um, from increased maternal labor force participation covered they said they estimated 40% of the daycare costs, and that was probably an underestimate. But, um, yeah, it's not – it doesn't create <laughs> It doesn't create more money. I mean, the other thing they say is that for every dollar you spend, you're going to save between 2 and $17 in um, long-term costs. That's, that's basically an investment that reaps these huge – I mean, in B.C. they said unlimited um, returns. And this is just – it flies in the face of the peer-reviewed, the solid research, such as that by Nobel Prize-winning economist James Heckman, who they always cite in this. They misrepresent um, Heckman's research, which he said there is a return for if you spend money on extremely marginalized, disadvantaged mm-hmm. children. And that return is about a $6 to $1 for $1 expenditure, but he, Heckman, the one they always quote and cite and mis- misrepresent, he said he doesn't recommend um, these universal programs. He says that the evidence does not um, support universal programs. He says vouchers, vouchers for these parents of very marginalized families to use in programs run by community and faith-based groups, not a government bureaucracy. He's very specific about that. And they, I mean, to... <laughs> Um, Kevin Milligan, the economist who talks about this misrepresentation of Heckman, he calls it a gross misrepresentation and jaw-dropping that these daycare and all the kindergarten lobbyists, you know, just, I mean, they're just lying mm-hmm. about this man's research. Well, yeah, and that's, that's policy being based on that policy that's costing us billions of dollars and harming millions of children right now. I, I've heard politicians cite, um, and I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the study, it was Inner City Chicago, Oh, decades ago, Perry Preschool, yeah, and, and Perry Preschool. I, I knew it started with a P. And, and they will say, "Well, this is why we need it." But there's there's no correlation between inner city urban Chicago and the majority of families in Canada because that again goes back to the marginalized investing in marginalized communities as opposed to saying let's have a universal program. Helen, thanks for taking a, a hard look at the data and the real numbers, and we'll continue to follow what you do, and uh, hopefully we'll chat again. Thank you.
All right. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast today. That wraps it for today's edition. Make sure you keep checking back. BrianLilly.com, one of the places you can go, or Facebook, Facebook.com. And as always, remember, on your side. Join the rebellion. Find more Brian Lilly at www.therebel.media.